This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Donald Trump's cruelty to children crossing the border is only the beginning of the bad things that happen to kids in the United States. We allow 34% of black children to grow up poor, along with 28% of Latino children. We'll talk about it with Katha Pollitt. She says that if those kids were, say, Norwegian, this would not be happening. Also, we're still thinking about Aretha Franklin. Of course, she died last week. We'll talk about Aretha and Angela with Columbia University professor Farah Griffin. First up, Trump in trouble. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, maybe you heard the news. On Tuesday, Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, pleaded guilty in federal court to several felonies and said under oath that he was instructed to commit two felonies by Trump himself. Also, Trump's former campaign chief, Paul Manafort, was convicted by a federal jury of multiple felonies. He faces many years in prison, and he has a second trial coming up next month. For comment, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. We reached him this afternoon in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, we have some breaking news at this hour. Uh, Lindsey Graham this afternoon said that Jeff Sessions could be replaced by Donald Trump as attorney general after the midterms, that's the first time a Republican has not insisted uh, that Jeff Sessions has to remain as attorney general indefinitely. What, uh, what do you make of this? Well, and uh, the second time that happened was a few minutes after Lindsey Graham spoke. Uh, uh, Charles Grassley, the somewhat senescent and always ill-tempered uh, <laughs> Republican senator from Iowa who chairs the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, so he'll be chairing uh, the uh, uh, confirmation uh, proceedings for uh, for Kavanaugh, uh, made essentially the same statement. Uh, so uh, whether this was orchestrated by the White House or not, uh, it's clear that uh, Trump has begun to uh, line up support, or else it's spontaneously li- lining up, uh, for uh, getting rid of Jeff Sessions, which, you know, normally would be the sort of thing that would delight uh, uh, our listeners and you and me, the yes. idea of getting rid of a racist, uh, uh, you know, uh, Latter-day Snopes character uh, uh, like Jeff Sessions. Yes. Uh, but in this case, this is a response to uh, Trump going, you know, again, talking to Fox and Friends in the morning and saying he thought, you know, it was part of uh, Sessions' job uh, not to recuse himself. And then Trump issued, uh, Sessions then issued a statement later today saying, you know, that the Justice Department under him will not be affected uh, by politics, which specifically in this instance obviously meant uh, uh, going out of its way to protect the president when, uh, you know, all of the facts were lining up on the other side. Um, and and after he said that is, is when Senators uh, Graham and Grassley uh, chimed in. Of course, you know, uh, getting rid of Sessions uh is only possible uh if it's done after January 1 uh if the republicans retain control of the senate otherwise Excellent the democrats point. aren't going to 
aren't going to confirm anyone who comes up there. And, you know, even if the Democrats don't uh, control the Senate, but if it's still about as close as it is today, 51 to 49, uh, you would imagine there would be a lot of pressure on somewhat invertebrate Republican so-called moderates like Susan Collins not to go along uh, with confirming a session successor when the only reason for getting rid of sessions from Trump's point of view is that he didn't, uh, you know, uh, allow uh, uh, whatever Trump did to just sort of run amok and, and, and not, you know, he allowed investigations to continue. So it, it's a politically fraught issue. And then again, there's always the possibility that uh, Trump would attempt to do this between the November election and January, if uh, the Re- Republicans lose control of the Senate, uh, but uh, it's not until January when the Democrats have a majority, uh, that would create, you know, a lame, a hell of a lame duck issue. So there's a, there are all kinds of factors in play here, and we already know that Trump has publicly excoriated Jeff Sessions for uh, letting these investigations, uh, and particularly the Mueller investigation, go forward. So today just sort of ratchets up that same conflict. Yeah, the 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 specter of uh, a Jeff Sessions firing coinciding with the Democrats in the House beginning uh, the impeachment hearings is is a fantastic one. We've never had anything like that. We have not. We have not. And obviously, uh, uh, you know, he, Trump has got to be more concerned about uh, the Democrats beginning such proceedings or just such investigations. Uh, I, I think uh, the convictions uh, uh, the convictions earlier this week uh, just really obviously raise uh, the odds that the Democrats will not simply do investigations, which they were going to do in any case if they retake the House, but uh, the odds of opening uh, an actual impeachment proceeding. And Trump today talked about the possibility of impeaching him. He said impeaching him would lead to a stock market crash. Uh, did that convince you impeachment would be a bad idea? <laughs> <laughs> well, that didn't happen. You know, I, I, I'm reminded when Bill Clinton was impeached, uh, the market was in the middle of its dot-com boom. <laughs> it stayed that way. And when Richard Nixon was not only impeached, but, you know, forced to resign because he was facing uh, a conviction in the Senate. I don't remember the stock market doing anything in particular. And I think, <laughs> frankly, you know, a lot of Wall Street, uh, w- which, you know, does not confide in me on a regular basis, <laughs> but a lot of Wall Street uh, would be relieved if mm. uh, if, if uh, Donald Trump were removed. I mean, we, we, we always hear that business hates uncertainty. That, yeah. That's, you know, yeah. that's a headline writer's uh, <laughs> meme. And uh, uh, if anything uh, uh, personifies uncertainty, if anyone personifies mm. uncertainty, it's Donald Trump. So and, and, I would think the market would actually p- perhaps even boom <laughs> if Donald Trump were impeached. And indeed, Wall Street has gotten everything they wanted out, out of Donald Trump already. So, you know, let's move on. Um, yeah, really. And and we need to move on to the uh, the the guilty pleas and the convictions here. Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to many crimes of bank fraud and tax fraud, but there were two really significant ones: payments of hush money to porn star Stormy Daniels, her real name is Stephanie Clifford, and Playboy model Karen McDougal. Uh, some listeners are asking, why is it a felon? Why would it be a felony? 
for Trump or Michael Cohen to pay hush money to women that Trump has had sex with? Whatever happened to freedom of contract in America? Really? Uh, well, freedom of contract has historically been used to excuse, uh, you know, damn near everything in this country, uh, including, I suppose, slavery. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, you're, you're, uh, you're engaging in a conspiracy. Uh, and in this particular case, the goal of the conspiracy uh, was to uh, affect the election, uh, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, I imagine if the Democrats do take the House and do take uh, attack of, of considering impeachment, that, uh, you know, in a, in a sense, this is uh, threatening, not threatening, is actually delivering a real threat to the integrity of uh, of, of of the uh, of, of the election by depriving the American public through non-public payments, secret payments, of uh, news that could affect the outcome of the election. So now, the the yeah yeah the actual crime here was that the payments uh, to these two women who who right. had sex with Trump were uh, actually a campaign contribution. Uh, in in the case of Stormy Daniels, uh, from Cohen, in effect, to the Trump campaign, which exceeded the legal limits for donations made by individuals, Trump went on TV and said uh, they they these two women were not paid out of campaign funds. Therefore, it wasn't a campaign contribution. Uh, uh, it was a payment to Stormy Daniels that was reimbursed by the Trump organization. Uh, does that get him off the hook? Uh, I'm not sure, uh, not having read enough on this. Uh, uh, it sure doesn't get him off the hook politically. Uh, yeah. But in... in, in uh, well, it's the cover-up. It's the cover-up. If yeah, you remember Watergate, exactly. it's, it's the cover-up. Yeah. Please, yeah. go ahead. No, and, and you know, the, 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 the fatal flaw, uh, the, the ultimate thing that brought Richard Nixon down was the tape uh, that revealed his participation in, or more accurately, instigation of the cover-up by ordering the FBI and the CIA to lie to the uh, uh, cops who were investigating uh, the Watergate break-in. Uh, and, and here, this is Trump uh, being, you know, this, this is what's so damaging about the uh, Cohen convictions, that there was an unnamed, uh, as it were, a co-conspirator. Yeah. Uh, who uh, who uh, ordered uh, on, on whose behalf Cohen was working when uh, he made these payments, and that, of course, is Trump. And, of course, the question that immediately arises is, if what Cohen did is illegal, isn't uh, what the guy who ordered him to do it uh, <laughs> yes. also illegal? Yes. Now, Stormy Daniels got paid directly by Michael Cohen, but the Playboy model, Karen McDougal, had a completely different arrangement her money came from the National Enquirer, which is owned by American Media Inc., the biggest publisher of tabloids in America. Uh, Trump's lawyer Rudy Giuliani says American Media Inc. did not make a campaign contribution. They purchased the rights from uh, Karen McDougal for her story, and that's the business they are in. So this is not a crime. The National Enquirer buys stories all the time. Some they publish, some they don't, and we should all stop complaining about this. What do you think? Well, except that there is a story out today, and I forget if this is in the New York Times or the Washington Post on their website this afternoon, saying that uh, Prosecutor Mueller has already immunized the head of uh, American Media, Inc., and that he's talking to him about the ins and outs 
presumably of this uh, this, this very uh, decision to pay uh, Karen McDougal to pay Karen McDougal and then not run the story. So uh, assuming that this guy knows more about it than Rudy Giuliani does and is talking to uh, Mueller's staff about it, uh, we will uh, we will certainly find out more about it. Now. I noticed that neither payment, neither the payment to Stormy Daniels, Stormy Daniels, nor to Karen McDougal came from the Russians. Where are the Russians in this story? Well, in this immediate story, uh, we 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 don't know. But then there's a whole larger chain of events uh, that uh, you know there are many shoes left to drop. Yes, and on this uh, centipede, on this centipede, I believe is the yes, indeed. That's a good. That that's a, a very good metaphor, uh, <laughs> and would be even better if centipedes wore shoes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I think it's you know, John it, McCain's. I believe it is John McCain's line. There are more shoes to drop uh, on this centipede. Good, good, good for John McCain. Uh, the uh, uh, whole uh, story of the, of the meeting with the uh, uh, with uh, the Russians uh, uh, that uh, took place in Trump Towers. Uh, that, that you know, we, Mueller is at work on this, and we have yet to uh, we have yet to uh, hear this. It's 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 important to note as well that uh, the Cohen case was not prosecuted uh, by uh, the special prosecutor by Mueller, but rather by uh, the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, which is to say Manhattan. Uh, uh, and I would imagine that the prosecution, that the investigation, uh, and should it come to it, the prosecution of the Russian involvement will, will, is, is clearly under Mueller's jurisdiction. And there's an interesting calendar fact about this. The payment to Stormy Daniels was decided on right after the Access Hollywood tape was released. And the other thing that happened that same day was that WikiLeaks and Julian Assange released the emails that the Russians had given them that they had hacked from the DNC computers. So the Trump campaign had two lines of, of uh, defense and counterattack to, to the Access Hollywood tape. One was to silence Stormy Daniels so there wouldn't be any more sex stories, and the other uh, was to uh, beef up the story of, the, of uh, quote, Hillary's emails with the uh, help of the Russians. Yes, the timing uh, might seem suspicious to people uh, if, if they were of a suspicious nature or if they were merely sentient beings. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is suspicious timing. I agree with you. Uh, so, so secret payments of hush money to help the Republican candidate get elected, wasn't that the key to the Watergate case? The burglars who broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate complex in 1972 were paid for their silence, and that was exposed, and that opened the door to everything else that we call Watergate. Absolutely, yes. There, there, there is an absolutely clear parallel there, and it's worth remembering uh, for those who think politically, that that's one of the reasons uh, the Democrats had a huge midterm election victory in 1974. And I think it's uh, certainly going to contribute to the Democrats doing uh, better. And I, o I already thought they were going to retake the House before before these convictions uh, for the Democrats doing better this November. And actually, this is a <clears throat> this is uh, a stronger piece of evidence that we ever got during Watergate. Uh, the evidence 
of the secret payoffs of hush money to help the Republican candidate get elected in this case come from the sworn testimony of the president's own lawyer. In the Watergate case, the president's lawyer was John Dean, and he never testified uh, uh, in court uh, that uh, that Nixon had uh, had committed felonies. So we're actually way ahead of Watergate in this case. Right. Well, this is actually really uh, the, the specific... Uh, revelation of these payoffs coming from the committee to reelect, as it was called, uh, yeah. uh, under under John Mitchell. Uh, that, that's specifically what was first unearthed by Woodward and Bernstein. That was their uh, going around noting where um, uh, you know how money ended up in uh, uh, the Watergate burglars' bank accounts. Uh, but, uh, so that 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 began a shoe leather work. Uh, and in this case, we have actually the guy who made the handoff in the case of Stormy yeah. Daniels yeah, yeah. saying, "I made the handoff, and it was a direction of the person for whom I was working, who shall be unnamed, but we all know who he is." So uh, y- you have said that this will. Uh you, in your opinion, help the Democrats in the coming elections. Uh, let's just go back to the ele- the last election, November uh, 2016. What do you think would have happened if it had come out a couple of weeks before that election, after the Access Hollywood tape, that Trump had had sex with a porn star and had a long affair with a Playboy model? Do you think some people might not have voted for him because of that? I think some people might not have voted for him because of that. Whether, you know, and that would have probably, you know, uh, it was one of those states, I think Wisconsin, where his margin of victory was only a couple thousand votes. Yeah. Uh, I think it's in, uh, very plausible that it would have turned Wisconsin, whether it would have been enough in uh, in Michigan and Pennsylvania. I do not know. It's certainly plausible. Uh, again, though, um, uh, the... Uh, 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 Comey's uh, timing on uh, talking about reopening uh, the investigation of Hillary Clinton still would have come after this, and uh, that uh, certainly was a factor uh, in late-breaking news that helped Trump, although as uh, we almost immediately later found out, uh, once the investigation was reopened on Hillary, it was closed because it revealed nothing. It was simply Anthony Weiner's uh, a computer, and there was nothing on it that was remotely incriminating of, uh, of of Hillary Clinton. Okay, the president directed his attorney to commit a felony to further his election chances. Is that an, an impeachable offense? Republicans well, are saying, Republican. Yeah. let me just give you the Republican right. line on this. Right. They're saying they're, the president will not be impeached for a campaign finance violation. Well, a campaign finance violation is, is is putting a very sanitized yes. view of this. Uh, uh, what the specific reason for that violation wasn't an error by a campaign treasurer, and it wasn't uh, seeking to conceal uh, a contribution. Uh, it was trying to cover up uh, a, a pretty you know salacious in in the minds of most of the public. Uh, a salacious affair that uh, he he didn't want uh, uh, to be public knowledge. Secondly, um, if and when an impeachment investigation starts, it's it's going to be fairly wide ranging, and I am confident will include uh, more particulars than than what Mr. Cohen was con- you know convicted for what he pled to. Uh, and third, the definition of what is an impeachable offense. 
uh, is really up to uh, up to Congress. High yeah. crimes and misdemeanors, which yeah. is the language in the Constitution, can be construed all kinds of ways. And I might point out that if people can remember back to the uh, Newt Gingrich House uh, attempts to impeach Bill Clinton, um, I mean, that was uh, about having uh, sexual relations with an intern and uh, uh, seeking to cover that up. I mean, I, I think in in terms of its effect on public events and public policy, uh, what Trump did, since it actually had some effect on the election outcome, uh, qualifies a lot more as a high crime and misdemeanor than uh, than what Clinton did. Uh, of course, Republicans count on the American people having no particular memory. In fact, the Republicans count on the American people having no understanding of what's going on on, on any given day. <laughs> uh, that, that's the whole purpose of Fox News. But, uh, you know, uh, be that as it may, it, it, it's really Congress's call. And I do think if the Democrats go down that route, they're going to uncover more and find a, a good deal more uh, than uh, what uh, uh, Cohen uh, said, admitted to. Well, our, our time is flying here, and we've not said a word about, about Paul Manafort, the former uh, chair of the Trump presidential campaign, who was found guilty of multiple felonies by a jury of peers, uh, banking and tax uh, violations. After his conviction, Trump uh, when uh, tweeted that he was a good man. Uh, would you call uh, Paul Manafort a good man? I would not call him a good man, but I would not call him a good man were he not indicted and on trial and convicted of what he was convicted of. I mean, he's he's been a representative of some of the most rotten figures uh, uh, on the planet, uh, uh, you know, in uh, uh, working uh, in his work in Ukraine and elsewhere. Uh, uh, you know, as, as well. I mean, actually, if you look at the people who've been convicted and the people around Trump, uh, good men is not the first phrase that comes <laughs> to mind in describing them. I mean, talk about a collection of sort of socially marginal, uh, uh, ethically challenged characters, uh, you know, and in, in, at one time under one roof. It's, pretty, it's a pretty remarkable assortment. And, 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 you know, Paul Manafort certainly fits... Uh, falls right into that categorization. Some people think that uh, Donald Trump might pardon Paul Manafort. Uh, what do you think? I think that's quite possible. Uh, he he may well. I, I don't think he's going to do any pardons before the midterm elections, because his, uh, his people around him have hammered into his head that that would uh, you know uh, almost ensure uh, the Democrats taking the House and 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 be a big step for them to to take the Senate as well. After the elections, I think, uh, you know, all bets are off. And, you know, that would be the case with Cohen, too, except Cohen's lawyer, Lanny Davis, has emphatically said that, that Cohen, you know, doesn't want to doesn't want a pardon and won't accept it. And we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, obviously, if the Republicans retain control of the House, um, there would be less of a downside uh, for Trump. Uh, if if he uh, pardons Manafort or Cohen or everybody, depending, uh, because you know, under if the Democrats are there, that that automatically, uh, you know, as as a hammer to the knee, as automatically as that, <laughs> yes, that would cause the beginning of impeachment meetings. If the Republicans retain control, uh, then that's not at all the case. Well, you know, uh, I doubt it. Uh, 
Well, speaking of the House, in, in the last minute or two we have here, I just want to note that the same day that Manafort was convicted and Michael Cohn pleaded guilty, Duncan Hunter, congressman from the Deep Red District around San Diego, was charged with felony campaign finance violations. The uh, prosecutor said he used campaign funds to pay for family vacations, dental visits, groceries, his kids' tuition, and he even bought a plane ticket for a pet rabbit to join the family on vacation. Uh, Duncan Hunter says he's not going to step down. Uh, He's going to stay in the race for Congress. Can the Democrats beat Duncan Hunter in San Diego? Well, that is a really hard district. That is a rock-hard Republican district. Uh, that 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 it'd be challenging, but you know it it remains possible. And you know if if it were an isolated incident, it would be harder. But in in light of all the Trump corruption, in light of the fact that you know I I think Hunter was the second member of Congress to endorse Trump back in 2016. The first member, a guy named Collins from upstate New York, uh, was uh, was just indicted for insider trading. <laughs> uh, and and there's some other questionable yes. two other questionable cases out there. So. You know, this is the kind of corruption wave uh, that is an electoral gift to the Democrats. And if it goes further, uh, you know, uh, who knows? Uh, uh, That could even put a district like Duncan Hunter's in play. Certainly, I would think it would uh, diminish Republican turnout uh, on November 6th. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. It's always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, mothers and children are in trouble everywhere. Katha Pollitt will explain. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, we remember Aretha singing for Obama. But first, mothers and pregnant women are undervalued, discriminated against, and punished in America and around the world. For that miserable story, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet essayist and award-winning columnist for The Nation. Katha, welcome back. Thanks for having me with this depressing story. (laughs) Well, Donald Trump's cruelty to children crossing the border is only the beginning of the bad things that happen to children uh, in the United States, most of which have nothing to do with Donald Trump. Uh, Where should we start? How How about the rates of infant and maternal mortality in the United States? Yes, well, um, Although we are very proud of our medical system, um, and although we are a high-income country, uh, the rate of maternal mortality in the United States is the highest in the developed world, um, which is really pretty shocking. Um, And we have a very high rate of um, infant mortality as well. And uh, here's something really shocking. Ours is the only country where the death rate for women, uh, the maternal death rate for women, is rising. 
Oh. Um, yeah, why? No. Why? Everywhere else, in the, everywhere else in the world is getting better, and we're getting worse. Um, why, Katha? Not... I have to ask you, why is that? Why is that? Well, there are a lot of reasons. There's poverty. There's racism. Uh, hospitals and doctors that are ill-prepared for obstetric emergencies and the low priority given to the issue. And here's another really upsetting detail. For every woman who dies, which is about 700 every year in the U.S., 70 almost do. Mm. Um, And this falls especially heavily on uh, black women. Um, So it's really a very serious problem. And I understand from your new column in The Nation that part of this serious problem arises out of the practices of Catholic hospitals. Well, this is really amazing. Uh, One in six hospital beds is in a Catholic hospital. Um, And in much of the country, that's the only hospital that's around. And this, again, affects disproportionately rural women and women of color who tend to live in those areas. Um, So that means that procedures that are banned by the church are unavailable to many patients, and that would include birth control, sterilization, male sterilization like vasectomies, abortion, uh, in vitro fertilization, and most disturbingly from the death point of view, uh, standard ways of managing miscarriages. Um, you know, if you have a miscarriage and it is incomplete, they'll give you a DNC. They'll they'll to get the fetus and the birth matter, whatever they call it, out of you. Um, Several women have nearly died because the Catholic hospital refused to complete a miscarriage in process. And this was the same thing. These are the same rules that killed Savita Halapanavar in Ireland, um, which was just so shocking and so horrified people that it jump-started the campaign to overturn that country's abortion ban, because in Catholicism, apparently, completing a miscarriage before the, the fetal heartbeat is dead, even though that fetus will never survive, it's dying, it's too young to survive, um, that's, that's abortion to them. So abortion opponents do argue that having a baby is, is a good thing, a natural thing, and a socially important thing, uh, what do we do uh, in the United States to help women who are pregnant? Well, we just don't do very much. In fact, we make life harder for them. Um, We have laws that are supposed to protect pregnant women from job discrimination, but it's rampant anyway, um, as it is around the world. and uh, the New York Times had an article recently about women being denied, you know, just the most ordinary accommodations like, can I carry a water bottle? I need an extra bathroom break. Mm. Um, I'm a policeman, a policewoman. How about a bulletproof vest? It fits. <laughs> um, and, and you know that these things, it's not so hard to give someone a water bottle, yeah. um, that these things are done out of hostility to pregnant women. It's to drive them out of the workplace. So I also learned from your new column in The Nation that in the United States, there's a big disparity in the ages at which women first give birth. Uh, Those with a college education and women who live in big cities or on the coasts tend to have their first baby around age 30, 
While less educated women who live in rural areas, the South and the Midwest, have their first babies around when they're 20, a 10-year difference. What, what do you make of this? Well, it's very interesting, um, and it's quite a change from um, 1980, say, when the most common ages to have your first baby were 18 and 19. So the most common, you know, kind of mother back then was a teenage mother. Mm. Um, and now it's, uh, there's this big difference opening up. Um, and uh, I think that there are parts of the country where there's a lot more stress on women getting educated, there's a lot more opportunity for women in a big city than in some small town. Um, and there's a, just a lot more sense that life has more things to offer you right when you're 20 than having a baby. Um, and I think poverty has something to do with it, too. Um, and also the just culture. Um, and um, it's, um, it's a very, it's a disturbing thing because although... One doesn't like to say it. It is just a fact that having a baby later works out better, both for the mother and the child. Um, you're, the woman is more educated. She's got a, a, a you know a, a record in the job world. She's um, she's at a she's a, at a better place in her life than she was when she was twenty, um, and also and it's better for the kid because the kid there's more money. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more money in the family, the, there's more education in the family, um, and so it's actually a good thing. Everybody's complaining, oh, if you wait too long, you'll be infertile, um, but uh, 30 is not really waiting too long. One of the other things you emphasize in your new column is among the bad things that, that happen to children and their mothers in the United States is poverty. Huge numbers of children live in poverty. What are your figures there? Oh, well, this is so shocking. This is just so shocking. 34% of black kids, that's a little bit over one in three, 28% of Latino kids, and for whites, it's still too high, 12%. Um, And we allow this to happen shows well what does it show? <laughs> you know there was an idea good. there um, was an idea that the government should deal with trying to reduce poverty among children that it's bad for children to grow up in poverty and therefore we should have government programs and there was a government program it was called Originally, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, AFDC. It was part of Social Security. It was established in 1935, and it was abolished in 1996. Who was president in 1996? Well, when... it, was, it was Bill Clinton who was president. Um, and the rules have got, it's gotten worse and worse and worse over time. States are allowed to uh, cut all kinds of things. I mean, there are cuts in food stamps now, for God's sake. Um, everything that could help kids is being cut from after-school programs. Um, you know, Betsy DeVos just said, uh, you know, well, let's give the schools some money to buy guns for teachers, <laughs> you know. And then we read in another article that teachers spend about $500 each buying supplies for, their sk- for the kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really, it, it is as if, I don't know, it's as if we have really given up on very large numbers of people, most of whom are, are people of color. 
Well, if I know you remember this, when Bill Clinton advocated for abolishing uh, aid for families with dependent children in 1996, uh, he said he was against welfare because he was in favor of personal responsibility in bearing children and raising them. Uh, are you against personal responsibility? No, I'm not. Um, <laughs> I'm not at all, um, and that's why I favor lots of um, lots of free birth control, lots of access to abortion, giving people the kinds of opportunities that will help them have have real choices in life. Um, but you have to deal with the world as it is. If someone has a baby, you have to take care of mother and child. Um, also, people have kids when they're in a good place, and then a few years later they're not. I mean, yeah. there's, you know, if you've had much to do with uh, low-income people, their lives can be very... Um, precarious. Precarious. Very, precarious, the very word. Yeah. Um, and so just as it seems like they're getting ahead, there's some big expense, someone is sick, they lose their job, um, and it's, they're just on this kind of awful treadmill. And I think that the government has a responsibility to give people a stable, decent life. And I don't even think that's so controversial. The other argument that was made against uh, AFDC uh, was that it was paying women to have children. Oh, that was so ridiculous. And, you know, there was that thing, um, what is it, the family cap, where certain states, um, I think New Jersey was one, I think Massachusetts became one, uh, which you'll note are blue states, um, but a lot of other states did this too, which was to say, if you're on welfare and you have another baby, we're not going to increase the amount of money that you get. So instead of you're taking care of you know, two children on X dollars a month, now you'll be taking care of three children on X dollars a month. This was supposed to make uh, poor families on welfare be prudent about birth control and all like that. Um, did it work? I mean, there were people, you know, I remember, I remember reading an article by Stanley Crouch, who's a, you know, big black writer, um, writing in the Daily News saying, well, this will take care of that problem. Um, because people just don't think. They don't think, what are people really like? How do people really make decisions? And, you know, the one way they don't make decisions is saying, you know, I would get $50 if I had a month, if I had another baby. <laughs> God. And now, I, so I'll have the baby, and oh, they're not going to give me the $50, so I guess I won't have a baby. That's not how people think. Um, so anyway, this was fantastically unsuccessful in lowering the rate of children born to women who were already on welfare. And I just read that Massachusetts is thinking, well, we should get rid of this, mm. this family cap thing. It doesn't work. So uh, our theme here has been, our, our initial premise was Donald Trump's cruelty to children has been horrifying, but most of the problems facing uh, children, especially poor children in the United States, have not been caused by Donald Trump. Some were caused by Bill Clinton. Some are caused by the Pope. Um, but there I would, are a lot of people at fault here. It's true. But I, I would like to end on a positive note, okay? The United States is a horrible place to get pregnant and have children if you are not white and middle class. What are the best places to get pregnant and have children? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know the answer to well, that. Well, how about France? What do they do oh, in France? Oh, other countries. I thought other, you meant what states. No, other yeah, countries. 
France is a very good place to have a baby. Uh, Scandinavia is a very good place to have a baby. You know where else? Austria. When I lived in Austria, I was astounded at how much social help there is. Um, and they, you know, they have nurses that come to your house after you have a baby and just see that everything's all right, and it's really great. The, the catch with all these, with a lot of these places that are great for uh, mothers and children is that they're not great for working mothers and children. Um, it goes along with a culture of staying home. Um, and in France, uh, if you have three children, only less, fewer than 40% of women with three children are in the workforce because the business culture is very unforgiving mm -hmm. and the whole society is oriented around, you know, oh, stay home, it's lovely. But there's um, a lot of uh, paid parental leave in, in those countries, isn't yes. there? For yes, there is. And you know there's a catch there, too, that people in America who work for this really need to think about, which is if the parental leave is too long, it cuts the woman off from work later. Yeah. Um, and that was what happened in Germany, where they have a parental leave, a maternity leave that lasts like three years. the end of that time, the woman is usually said, oh, fuck, I'm sorry, sorry I shouldn't say that. Uh, oh, heck, shites. Um, uh, I can't, you know, I've lost all my contacts with the work world, and um, I'll just have another baby. Um, and so... Uh, the it, people need to think. It, it, these, the devil is in the details with a lot of these things that we just say, oh, they're great, because they can be great in some ways and not in others. Katha Pollitt, she wrote her new column for The Nation about how mothers and pregnant women are undervalued, discriminated against, and punished in the United States and in other countries around the world. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Thanks for having me, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, we remember Aretha. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening Jerry quickly. But first, we're still thinking about Aretha Franklin. Of course, she died last week. For comment, we turn to Farah Griffin. She's Ransford Professor of English and Comparative Literature and African-American studies at Columbia University. She's written several books. The most recent is Harlem Nocturne, Women Artists and Progressive Politics in New York During World War II. We reached her today in New York City. Farrah Griffin, welcome. Thank you. Well, Aretha Franklin, in many ways, of course, was unique, but she came out of a particular time and place. When she was four years old in 1946, her family moved to Detroit, where her father the Reverend C.L. Franklin, became pastor at New Bethel Church. What did it mean for her to grow up in that world in the 40s and 50s? Well, Detroit was a um, kind of one of the, what I think of as the great migration meccas, you know, um, where people came from throughout the South. 
um, or from smaller cities um, to a place like Detroit. Some people went to Chicago, others to New York, Philadelphia, um, as part of the Great Migration. And these were places that you know, had their own difficulties, their own racial difficulties, but also promised a greater degree of mobility and freedom and also quite promised um, possibilities in terms of employment that people wouldn't have had access to. Detroit especially offered that to the migrants, and particularly in a kind of post-war period, it would have been a kind of booming place culturally, politically, economically for black people who came. And yet at the same time, we have to remember that with the wave of race riots in 1943, Detroit had been the site of one of those. So it's a very complex place for um, Aretha and her family to arrive. But um, the church itself would be a place where someone with her gifts and talents could have blossomed. And her world growing up was rich in black music. Absolutely. It's the the world of the church. Her father is, you know, this very well-known minister who already was a kind of recording success himself, um, having recorded some of his sermons. And she got to know the sort of royalty of black music culture, Dinah Washington, um, Clara Ward, who was her father's partner for a while, Mahalia Jackson. Um, so just in the church world alone, it's like an incredibly vibrant and rich place. But also outside of the church world, Detroit is also this place where the young performers who are her contemporaries who will make the Motown sound are coming up and practicing and creating groups. And so there is such a kind of rich, vibrant music culture in Detroit at that time. I think it's unmatched. She released the song Respect in April 1967. It was an Otis Redding song, but she changed it. She changed its meaning. Uh, Please explain. Otis Redding had recorded that song, and and I think he learned one of the things that many people would learn with Aretha, that if if Aretha did a cover, it wouldn't really be a cover. She would make it her own. Aretha took that song and really made it an anthem. And it was an anthem about a particular kind of woman who had her own resources. She wasn't a woman who was going to, you know, being kept or taken care of. She had her own resources, and she was offering to share them with her lover only if he gave her respect. It's a song that can become an anthem for particular kind of female empowerment, but because of the time in which it's released, it's also an anthem for kind of the um, civil rights movement, the burgeoning black power movement. There's a militancy there. There's a great dignity there. And there is a kind of demand. It's not a request. It's not a request, oh, please respect me, you know, but it's a demand that one of the conditions of having me continue to be involved with you is that you respect me. In 1970, Aretha told Jet Magazine that she wanted to post bail for Angela Davis. Remind us why Angela Davis was in jail in 1970 and what it meant that Aretha wanted to bail her out. 
Well, Angela had kind of been on the radar. Um, Ronald Reagan, who at the time was governor of California, um, had a real problem with Angela Davis working in the UC system because she was a communist, an avowed communist, and as we know, he was an anti-communist. So there had already been challenges about Angela's place and role in the academy, the public academy there. And then when Jonathan Jackson you know, went to the Marin County Courthouse demanding that his brother be released, his brother George Jackson be released, used a, uh, uh, some guns to hold the judge in a case there hostage. The guns were later traced to Angela. So Angela, there was a long period where Angela was underground, and then she was um, caught. She was on the FBI's most wanted list, and she was charged with conspiracy, kidnapping, and murder. Those were federal. I mean, those were um, capital crimes. Um, the, the death penalty is what she was up against. There was a campaign to get her bail. You know, you could not get bail on those charges. It was a capital offense, and so there was a campaign to try and see if she could get bail. And briefly, for a brief moment, when California outlawed the death penalty, then she was eligible for bail. But Aretha, you know, signed on to support her in that campaign and then offered to pay the bail herself. And who was Aretha at this point in, in 1970 when she wanted to bail Angela out? So by 1970, Aretha was a major star. She's one of the primary architects of the music we know of as soul. And Interestingly enough, she's also appealing to not just black audiences. By 1970, she's got a large white audience, too. In fact, I think Aretha's sound is the sound of the times. It's the voice of the time. She's huge in 1970. And Angela, as you say, was a communist. She was probably America's most prominent communist in 1970. The University of California regents had tried to fire her from her first job teaching philosophy at UCLA in the fall of 1969. Now, Aretha was not a communist in 1970. Why did she support America's most prominent communist? Well, I think for Aretha, it wasn't that Angela was a communist. Angela was a black woman. And that's why she supported her. She says in her statement to Jet, I don't even care about the fact that she's a communist. She's a black woman who's devoted her life to black people, and therefore I'm going to support her. She says, I have the money to do so. The bail, I think at that time, was they talked about $250,000. She said, I have the money to do so, and I got this money. I earned this money from black audiences, from black people, and I want to use it to help black people. So it was in spite of her being a communist. She wasn't an Aretha wasn't like an anti-communist by any means, but that's not why she was supporting Angela. She was supporting Angela because Angela was a black woman committed to black freedom struggle. Now, in the piece you wrote for The Nation magazine about uh, Aretha, you interviewed Angela Davis about this mm-hmm. moment. Tell us, tell us what Angela said. Well, Angela said that it really, that Aretha's support really was a turning point in the campaign and campaign for not only for trying to get her bail or bond, but in the campaign for her freedom. She said that at the time, Aretha was the most prominent figure to support her. Other people who had held back because they were afraid of the communist connection, like we aren't that far removed from McCarthyism, right? right? And so people understand what that means. They were afraid. She said that they were then willing to put themselves out, that it really was a major turning point and that she was always grateful for Aretha's public support. 
moving right along, Aretha sang at the inauguration of Barack Obama in January 2009. Remind us about that moment. It was an extraordinary moment. Um, one, it's because of the historical nature of Obama becoming president of the United States. Yes. And Aretha had, you know, she sang for other presidents. She sang at pre-inaugural activities for Carter. She sang for um, Bill Clinton. Clinton. But this was sort of, you know, this is a woman who who sang to raise money for Jesse Jackson and sang for Martin Luther King and sang at Mahalia Jackson's funeral. For her to actually sing for America's first African-American president was extraordinary. And I always think of her singing in that moment as sort of reminding us of what America's potential was, that this is who we could be as a nation. Look at what we just did look at what we can possibly do, what we can become. It, it felt like a very aspirational moment. I was there, and I, I don't think anyone could have done it in the way that Aretha did. And the song that she sang, that's also notable. Right. She did not sing the national anthem, <laughs> oh, she, you know, the Star Spangled Banner. She sang My Country, Tis of Thee, which is a song that claims the nation for the people who are being invoked as community um, for the people, you know, who she represented in that style that she sang, claim the country, I think, um, in a way that the, only that song allows her to do for the people who have, you know, maybe been on the underside, maybe the people who have been on the underside of America's history, that this is our nation too. It's not a militaristic song. It's not a bombastic song. It's an inclusive community-creating song. So Aretha sang for Obama on the first day of his presidency. She sang for him again at the Kennedy Center in the last year of his presidency. She sang, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. The TV cameras showed Michelle whispering to him, It's true. At the end, there were tears on his face and lots of others. 18 million people have watched that video clip as of this week. Why do you think that was such an amazing night? There's so many reasons because there's so many narratives that are going on. It's an amazing night because it's the last year of his presidency. It's an amazing night because we know what's coming. (laughs) We know how different the incoming presidency is going to be. And I think it was an especially amazing night, and maybe this is part of the emotion of it, is because of Aretha's own resilience. That here she is at a stage, a later stage in her career, She's a virtuoso musician. She was a prodigy on the piano. And so, first of all, she sits down at the piano, so we know we're getting a rare treat. We're getting to hear her in a way that we don't often hear her. She's accompanying herself on the piano. And then there's that grand diva moment where she stands up and she's so overcome and she's going to give us the best from the very depths of her soul. She's going to give it. um, And she throws off that mink coat <laughs> um, in a, like this incredible moment of drama, you know, almost mm. like an, something that one would have in opera. And her voice is extraordinary. And this is late Aretha. If you think about it, this is going to be one of her last performances. And one doesn't expect someone to be in that voice who's had a career that long, but her voice is extraordinary. And I think that for many people, there's a kind of sadness that we're losing Obama, that the Obama era is over, especially because what is coming. But Aretha always represents, and I think she did that night, the resilience, you know, that we have the power and we have the um, tradition to move through even the most difficult times. I mean, it, it really, I think it's going to go down in history as one of the most important performances of the this period. 
Aretha represents the resilience. Farrah Griffin, she wrote about Angela Davis and Aretha Franklin for The Nation. You can read that piece at thenation.com. Farrah, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK. And finally, it's time for a Your Minnesota Moment. Of course, that's news from my hometown of St. Paul. It's state fair time in St. Paul. And, of course, the Minnesota State Fair, America's biggest state fair, uh, has amazing and wonderful food. Just want to let you know some of the new highlights of state fair food in St. Paul this week. The barbecue split. This is a thing... It's, it looks sort of like a banana split, except instead of the banana being split, it's a pickle that's split. And the three scoops, instead of being vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry ice cream, the three scoops are barbecue pulled pork, mac and cheese, and coleslaw. Uh, that's the BBQ split. It's available at the Minnesota State Fair at Mama D's Taste of Midtown Global Market. Uh, there's also another one of my favorites, blueberry rhubarb cobbler. Organic blueberries and organic rhubarb topped with a cornmeal biscuit and whipped cream. That's at the Farmer's Union Coffee Shop, also known for having great uh, coffee. Uh, And one more, uh, the French Meadow Bakery and Cafe, a wonderful place. I was there just last week. Uh, has something called Earth Wings. This is fresh cauliflower pieces, fresh cauliflower pieces dipped in a seasoned batter deep-fried and smothered in organic sesame barbecue sauce. <clears throat> it's vegan. It's gluten-free. Uh, it's sort of healthy. Uh, those are some of the special foods at the Minnesota State Fair in St. Paul right now. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. Harold Meyerson talked about the news from Washington. Katha Pala talked about mothers and children. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, our producer, Renee Reynolds. We had additional production help today from Will Broughton. Thanks, as always, to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. And coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry Quickly. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or any of our shows, You can listen anytime you want online at trumpwatchpodcast.com. We'll be back next week at the same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.